I'm Jason Espy, but I serve here as an elder, and we'll be reading from Acts, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, some people also say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but we're reading chapter 1, so if you want to turn there, we'll go 1 through 12. It starts in verse 1, the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of me, of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning again, friends. Well, I just want to say it's, it's good to be back here at Calvary Bible Church, and um, it really was a great time with my family just to spend some time on sabbatical in June and July, but I'm also excited about being here this morning, and I'm honored to be the pastor of this church. So if you have your Bible, uh, make sure to go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where we will be today. We really, we read from verses 1 through 12 to give us kind of the complete context, but this morning we're really going through verses 1 through 8. And today we're beginning our new series in the month of August on going out and essentially taking the good news to all. Today we answer the question, okay, why? Why should we go out? And then the next three Sundays we'll be talking about how. So this is the question we are answering today is why should I go out and share my faith? Why should I go out and share my faith? You know, that's kind of a difficult question to answer, because when I was growing up, I had a completely different answer than I'm going to give you this morning. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, I went to church here, I grew up in all sorts of different children's programs, kind of surrounded by uh, the bubble, so to speak, of Christianity. I, was, I went to a Christian school, and how I would have answered this question as a, as a young lad is I would probably say something because God wants me to or expects me to. The motivation to share my faith has to be go beyond that. My motivation as a kid was just to mainly be a good Christian. As Noah shared last week, the mentality I had was do more or try harder. That was 
my lens of Christianity. I really never felt good enough. Anybody tracking with me on that one? I didn't really feel good enough. I knew that I was saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. But... Let me just ask you the question. This question. What is the answer that you would say to yourself? Why should I go out and share my faith? If someone walked up to you in the church parking lot after church today, hopefully you'll have an answer for them. But if somebody just walked up to you and said, why should you even bother to share your faith? How would you even respond? The motivation to share your faith has to go beyond guilt. Because God expects me to. The motivation to share your faith must go beyond shame. I think sometimes we picture heaven as if we pass from this life, we go into heaven, we, we are standing on clouds. I'm not sure why that's the image I have. We enter into the pearly gates, and then we don't see Jesus, the one who loves us there, but we see Jesus, the righteous judge, and he's both. We won't get into that theological discussion right now. But we see Jesus, and instead of, in our eyes, being warmly greeted, in, in our eyes, in my eyes as a kid, it, he just had this checklist of all the things I did right and all the things I did wrong. The motivation to share our faith must go beyond comparison, to feel a little bit just a little bit better than other Christians. The motivation must be more than obligation or inspiration. Biblically, to share our faith, to share the gospel, isn't any of those. What is our motivation? What is the fuel that should fuel the fire to go out and be the light of the world. Having the right fuel makes all the difference in the world. In, uh, in high school, I knew somebody that accidentally put kerosene in their gas tank. Um, didn't go well. But why we should share our faith boils down to two things that we see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, the motivation, the fuel to share the gospel boils down to two things. It boils down to who we are, our new identity in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us, that we have a new identity and who we are. And the second thing boils down to what we have. That now because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, what we have now also fuels us to share our faith. So this is the question we are answering today. So with this in mind, look at your scripture with me. Acts chapter 1, and like I said, we'll be going verses 1 through 8. We see the introduction in verses 1 through 3. We see uh, the inquisition in verses 4 through 6, 4 through 7, excuse me. And then we see the answer in verses uh, 7 and 8, or with the ignition, I would say. But before we really dive in, why this series? Why now? You know, why are we taking a month of August, just kind of set aside this time to talk about why we should evangelize, why we should share our faith? Well, the three reasons why I wanted to do this series is reason number one is um, because each year we have three different types of sermon series. In between the books that I do, we have Loving God with our mind, so that's systematic theology, we usually do that in January. Loving God with our heart, we talk about the Psalms, and then loving God with our soul, which is loving God with our actions. So this is designed to be the last one, 
to love God with our actions. Reason number two, the reason we wanted to talk about go out, is because this is the year of go out. If you've heard me talk about that, this is the year of go out to the world. And we sent a mission trip over to Dresden, Germany to kind of scout out for the trip so we can have a long-term relationship. But also this is the year of go out to the zip code, to our neighbors. That's why we built the playgrounds, why we had a block party and all this other stuff. But the main reason why I wanted to do this sermon series on going out is because I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks through other believers. Um, Back in July, we had our elder meeting. And um, I trust no other men like our elder board here at Calvary Bible Church. They're great guys. If you serve on the elder board, you have served on the elder board, thank you. You're great men. Um, but at the last elder meeting, I mean, if you know my personality, I'm, I'm a little bit meticulous, a little bit plan ahead type of guy. I mean, I've already started thinking about what I'm going to preach, what books next year. So I'm kind of about a year in advance. So I already had an idea for August, which wasn't this. I had kind of a totally different perspective. And then back in July, our elders kind of said, Byron, we really, if this is the year of go out, we really want to hear your heart for this. So I kind of took that as, the Holy Spirit speaking to me through the minds and hearts and the spirit inside of the elder board. And then I just kind of reversed course. And that's why we're talking about sharing our faith today out of Acts chapter 1. So today we're answered why. And then the next three Sundays we will answer how. But maybe you can relate to this story on sharing your faith. About uh, 20 years ago, I was right here at Calvary Bible Church, and I talk about this often, but I had lots more hair, and it was beautiful. I just need to grieve that. Um, and a lot less gray. I look at myself in the mirror. I cannot believe how much gray I have. I need to start just for minting that thing. Okay. Um, and wear a toupee. All right. Um, but about 20 years ago, I was kind of the youth intern here, and I was leading a group, a, a group of teenage guys. So I'm 18, 19 years old, and I'm le- leading this group of about – you know, six to eight, 14 to 15-year-old guys. And one Friday night, I tell all these guys, hey, man, let's go up to the church right here at Calvary. Let's go hang up at the depot. And let's just, you know, and I didn't tell them what we were actually doing. So these 14, 15-year-old guys coming in, they think we're probably going to play video games or we're going to go, you know, hang out or something like that. Well, these guys come in, and I had a big old surprise for them. I said, guys, guess what we get to do tonight? <laughs> And, they, and they, I said, we're going to go to Parkway Place Mall or Madison Square Mall. You remember Madison Square Mall? And we're going to go share our faith. We're going to go to people sitting by themselves in the food court, and I'm going to send two of you to talk to these people about Jesus. You could have seen the horror on their face. But then it, that story gets me thinking, why are we nervous about it? You know, why... Why do we struggle for this right there? I'm wondering how many of us in this room, when you walked in and you, found, you saw the bulletin cover on Go Out, how many of you instantaneously felt a little bit of a knot in your stomach? You know, there, there are several reasons why we struggle to share our faith. I count five. Number one, we feel like we don't know enough. Number two, we don't know what we believe. Number three, we don't know who to share with. And then number four, many of us don't know why we should share, but really number five is the key. This is what really prevents most of us from ever sharing our faith. Well, I think number five should be that we oftentimes live in a little bubble, but really number five is fear. You tracking with me on that? For example, 
if I took you all to Parkway Place Mall this afternoon, and I dragged some of you, and I surprised you like that, and I said, hey, guys, we're going to go share our faith to people sitting alone in the court, in the in courtyard, whatever it's called, the food court, there would probably be this instantaneous not. What? What if? And then we have this fear. What if they have a question I can't answer? What if they never talk to me again? What if they get angry? You know, we, we struggle to share our faith maybe in our own homes because what if my children get mad with work? What if I mess up my relationships at work? What if, what if, what if? But what I've realized over the years is that the closer I am with Jesus, the more I want to share about Jesus. The times of my life, and I look back at them, when I could hear the heartbeat of God, the fear of sharing my faith would subside. So the reason why we are to share is found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we really see it because of two different things. Number one, because of who we are, and then number two, because of what we have. So if you have your Bible, just to kind of paint the scene very quickly for you all, the book of Acts has already been mentioned. The original language name for that book is not the book of Acts. It's actually the Actions of the Apostles. That's actually the title, the Actions of the Apostles. And if you know this book, there are two main apostles that are on display or that are highlighted for us. We see kind of the beginning half of the book is on the Apostle Peter, and on the second half is the Apostle Paul. And where the book of Acts begins is where we will be today. Jesus is risen from the dead. He is about to ascend. We have the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then at the end of the book, we have Paul's missionary journeys and his trials before those in Jerusalem. And so where we pick up today is really the introduction in verses 1 through 3. We see that, and he introduces it this way, the introduction, if you have your notes. This is verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, all, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Verse 2, until the day when he, has ta- he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive. Notice that part. After his suffering... By many convincing proofs, that word proof is beyond certainty, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now notice here in verse 1, we have quite a few things going on as far as the introduction to our passage today. Notice first it says, the first account I composed was all about Jesus began to do and to teach. What What is Luke talking about here? He's talking about the Gospel of Luke. So really, in a sense, the Gospel of Luke is volume one, and the book of Acts is kind of volume two. The two go hand in hand together. So the first account I composed recorded what? All that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's what the Gospel of Luke is all about. It's all about the ministry and teachings of Jesus. But then notice, who does he write the book of Acts to? guy named, has a funny name, named Theophilus. I should have named a child that, okay. Been getting weird on homeroom in high school. That word Theophilus is actually a compound word. It's actually two different Greek words smooshed together. Theo is theos, means God, and then philos means love. So this guy's name literally means God love. 
So the question we have to answer is, what does that even mean? Does that mean he is loved by God, or does that mean he is a lover of God? I would probably take the last one, the lover of God. So we see this book is written to Theophilus. Now the question that scholars ask when they talk about this guy is, is it a real person or is it a general category? Is Luke writing to a man named Theophilus or is he writing to all people who love God? It's kind of semantics. He is probably writing to a particular individual, but he's also writing this book to those who love God, to Christians, to those who want to follow him, to those who love him and seek to seek him. And this is a recording in the book of Acts of all the early church accounts. So the first account I could post to the office about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. Now notice that. So he's describing in more detail what happens at the end of the book of Luke. Taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now if you were to read the end of Luke 24, this is kind of the specifics. Excuse me, I squeaked there. The specifics of that day. Okay. This is, okay, I'm sorry. The end of Luke is the generalities and Acts chapter 1 is the specifics. And then notice in verse 3, this is where I kind of want to camp a little bit longer. To these he also presented himself alive. Notice that word alive. After his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. I want you to notice a handful of things. This book was written to a man named Theophilus or a person who loved God. But I want you to notice first how many days. I think we've got to take this detail for granted. I imagine most of you know the answer to that question. He appeared to them for 40 days. The word appeared means kind of come and go, right? And that's what we know from the end of the Gospel of Counts. But go with me on this. Okay. So let me dial in a little bit of Jewish culture. Okay. So there are three annual feasts that require Jews in the first century to to cause a immigration or migration to the city of Jerusalem. You have the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. Okay, why is all that important? Okay, so the Feast of Passover this year begins on April 5th, and the Feast of Pentecost begins on May 28th. So those two dates are 54 days apart. Okay, so what do you know that happens when, when does Jesus die? He dies on the Feast of Passover, and then what do you know that happens at the Feast of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit comes? So let's just say for the sake of argument that there are 54 days in between those two feasts. He appears to them over a period of what? 40 days. So there's about, give or take, a week or two on the back end that the disciples and on the front end, the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. But then notice it says in verse 3 that he presented himself alive. Why is that important? Because he is verifying to the disciples again and again and again over the period of 40 days that he truly died and he rose again. Let me just ask the question, how do we for certain know that Jesus rose from the dead? 
I mean, we can't go, you know, look at the tomb, but how, what's one of the best evidences we have? Obviously, the scripture itself and the witnesses that we see here, but also what? The lives of the disciples. What do we know about the lives of the disciples? That 11 of the 12, or 12 out of 12, but 11 of the 12 were killed for their faith, and no one, what, dies for a lie. So we know by their own life that this is true, that he has become alive he wants to verify them, verify it to them. But then notice the next piece, number two, he gave them convincing proof. The word proof there is a hypoxagomena. It means this is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. It means a token or a criterion of certainty. In other words, what? Jesus wants them to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he died and that he rose again in that period of 40 days. What are some ways that he proved it? What are some ways that he gave a criterion of certainty, of proof? What do we know that happened with the disciples and the doubting Thomas? What did he do? He appeared before them, and what did he say? See my hands and my side. What did that verify to Thomas and the disciples? That he died, and then he is alive standing right there. So in that 40 days, he wants them to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he died and that he rose again. And then if you notice the third part, is speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That is why they then ask the question they have in verse 6. So we have the introduction here, verse 1 through 3, and then we have the inquisition. Notice verse 4. So the fact that he's talking about the kingdom of God, bells and whistles, light bulbs are going off, and especially with verse 5 and 6. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice that phrase, with the Holy Spirit, and not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it now? Is it at this time we're restoring the kingdom of Israel. What is their inquisition? What is their question? Their question is, when, Lord? Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you, were, you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's easy for us to give the disciples a hard time for this question because they have been looking for this all along, right? But Jesus' words in verse 5 is what causes them to ask this question. Why do I say that? Listen to this one excerpt from a commentary. It says this, It is not surprising from Jesus' prior remarks in verse 5 about the coming of the Spirit and the fulfillment of God's promises that the disciples concluded the final coming of God's kingdom might have been imminent. Such passages as Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, were interpreted in nationalistic terms that saw a general outpouring of the Spirit on Israel as a mark of the final great messianic day of the Lord. Okay, what? So Joel chapter 2 it talks about the end of Joel chapter 2 talks about the spirit coming down and the kingdom of God 
is, is going to be established. And the disciples view that as a nationalistic term. So when they hear that the Holy Spirit is coming, they associate that immediately with an earthly kingdom is about to arrive. So of course they ask the question, the Spirit of God will come, so when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Of course that's the question. But what's the answer that Jesus gives them in verse 7? You know, before I give you that answer, despite living with Jesus for three years, despite having an opportunity to ask him question after question after question, the disciples here still have questions unanswered by God. Let me just ask you guys a question. You can raise your hand to this one. It's not incriminating, so it's cool. Um, how many of you have been walking with Jesus for more than three years? All right. Do you still have questions? If you have a question for God, guess what? That makes you normal. All right? Why, God? Why did you allow this to happen? When are you going to do this? How are you going to guide me in this trial? Why, Lord? We all have questions. We're all just like the disciples. What's the answer to your question? What does the Lord want you to do? I think the Lord does answer our questions. Oftentimes we don't see them because we're too busy looking for the answers we want. Amen? But what should we do when we have questions for the Lord? I was, um, I was in a restaurant recently and I saw... A friend of mine, and, you know, I asked him about his family and his kids, and he just, I didn't go this far, he, he brought it, and he just kind of said, you know, you know, I'm really concerned for them. And he said, you know, I, I'm really concerned that they have chosen to kind of walk away from Jesus. And he illustrated his life as a parent to his grown adult children as Jeremiah, crying out to the Lord, really unable to really force his children to walk with God. And, you know, we all have questions for God. You know, my question for you is, what is your question? What question do you have rolling around in the back of your mind that God, in your opinion, has an answer or you're waiting for his answer? What does the Lord want us to do when we have questions? Notice verse 7 with me in the Inquisition and his answer. And he said to his disciples, it is not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed. The word fixed there means to place has placed together by his own authority. What's Jesus' answer to their question? Trust God. Trust the Father. It is not for you to know the times and epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Friends, some of you are probably facing something scary. Trust God. Some of you are facing questions that you can't simply answer. Trust God. Some of you right now have tried and tried and tried, and you're at your end of your rope. Trust God. God, whether we feel it or not, whether we see it or not, God is truly in control. It is not for you to know the times and epics which the Father has placed by his own power or authority. We all have questions we should trust him. What does the scripture say? Philippians four, six, and seven. What? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and what? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will what? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So we have the introduction, the who, what he was doing in the 40 days. We have their question based on Joel chapter 2 and the coming of the Spirit of God and the coming of the kingdom to Israel. And then we have the ignition. I'll talk about why I chose that word in just a moment. Why should we go out? Reason number one or point number one is this. We received power. We received past tense power. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. And you will receive power. If you have a pen, a marker, a highlighter, whatever it is, highlight that in your Bible. Power. But you will receive power. The word will receive is a future tense, I believe, off the top of my head, it's an indicative verb, which means the verb of certainty. And wait, you will Certainly, he's talking to his disciples, of course, but we also know that this is true for us, that all believers in Jesus Christ, what, have what, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and because we have that, we have what, we have power. Okay, say that word with me, power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word power, here is the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite, I think we think of the power of the Spirit like we will receive power. Gives a totally different understanding in the original language. It's like this. You will receive power. Dunamis. Dynamite. An explosion. A power that we cannot fully comprehend or understand. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have power. Power to overcome fear, that knot that comes in your stomach anytime you actually think about sharing your faith. You have power. We have the power of God inside of us. And I want you to think about how this power is on display here in just a couple of weeks or in a matter of days in the apostles' lives. What happens? You have these disciples and these followers and these apostles waiting for the Spirit to come. And we see their fear in a sense, at the end of the Gospels, in the beginning of the book of Acts. And then what happens after the Spirit comes? The Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and then they receive power, and then what happens? Peter then walks out and preaches basically his first sermon. He sees 3,000 people come to Christ. We see the power of God on full display. We have the power of God that ignites us. I purposely use that word ignite. The Spirit of God ignites us. Let me ask you the question. What does the ignition on your car do? It takes something that was dead and brings it to life. It takes this cold engine designed for a purpose but sitting idle and ignites that engine for life. That is, in a sense, all analogies, all illustrations break down in time. I get it. Okay. But that is essentially the spirit of God, that we here today are designed by God for a purpose. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, we receive the permanent and dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and it, in a sense, gives us power. It ignites our ability to be used by God. So why should we go out? We receive power, and then we also receive purpose. I'm going to spend pretty much the rest of our time talking about this purpose, but kind of, I may have to alliterate. I'm a pastor, and no, I alliterated last week. Thank you for, you know, stroking my ego on that. Um... We all alliterate as preachers, and we all have three-point sermons. I don't understand it, but that's just the way it is. We receive power, and we receive purpose. Why? 
from the Spirit, but because of our identity. Notice the end of verse 8. You shall be my witnesses. Circle that word too. We receive power and we shall, the word be here, we kind of skim over that, but it's the word become, be transformed, changed from the inside out. You shall become my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the earth. This is the lens that I see uh, missions, city, nation, and world in a sense. So that's kind of why we have structured our go out in that fashion. But we see here, I'm not going to camp on that. You shall be my witnesses. This word reveals our identity. Because of our identity in Christ, because of the life change he has given to us as his witness, it gives us the ability and the calling to share the gospel wherever we go. Our identity gives us this purpose as his witness. Allow me to share who you are in Christ. The moment you trust in Christ as Lord of your life, your identity changes. The moment you believe in Jesus, you are born again and you have a new identity. What does the scripture say? The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are adopted. You are a child of God, a friend of God. You are united with God. You belong to God. You are part of the body of Christ. The moment you trust in Christ as Lord of your life, you are born again. You have a new identity. You have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. You are redeemed, forgiven of all your sin. You are complete in Christ. You are free from condemnation. The moment you trust in Christ as Lord of your life, you are born again and you have a new identity. You are free. Again, from condemnation, you are assured all things work together for good. You cannot be separated from the love of God. You are established, anointed, and sealed. You are a citizen in heaven. You are God's co-worker. You are his workmanship, and you are part of the ministry of reconciliation. And the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born again. You have a new identity as his witness. But that identity as A witness concerning the things of God gives us purpose. Let me just ask the question. What is the purpose of a witness? To tell the truth. Guess what? That's our purpose, friends. Is that when the time presents itself, we already have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and our purpose as His witness is to tell the truth. How many of you, you don't have to answer this, you can answer. How many of you have ever been a witness in a court of law? Have I ever done that before? I've been there. Okay, it's a terrifying experience. One time I was a witness in a lawsuit. It was a lot of fun. Okay, and I'm sitting there in the courtroom, and of course, you know, I do the, you know, you, you know, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, okay? All that kind of stuff. And then I'm called to witness. And at that moment, I have a job to do. I have a purpose to serve. I have to tell the court exactly what I believe the truth really was. That is the same for us. You are God's witness, purpose to tell the truth. That's it. You know, I think sometimes we, I think one of the reasons why we fear, and we have that, that, that knot. Am I the only one that can re- relate to this one? On the, okay. That knot that comes in our stomach when we feel like we have an opportunity to share the gospel. Um, 
is because we feel like everything's really up to us. You know, I, you know, I got to present it perfectly. I got to present it the right way. I have to really know my stuff. I got to have a piece of paper and a pen so I can draw the Romans road. I mean, you know, and we feel like we have to, or we have to go in the Big Spring Park and stand on a box with a megaphone and tell everybody in the park that they're burning in hell. Okay, I've seen those too. If you do that, sorry, whatever, moving on. Um, you know, take the pressure off. Our job is not to necessarily convince somebody to come to Christ. I kind of see that as the Holy Spirit's role of opening their eyes to the truth. Our job as God's witness, we already have the power, dunamis, our job is to simply tell the truth. That, that's what we're here to do. That the moment an opportunity comes open at work, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you know what I'm talking about. There are certain times at work in the past, especially in corporate America, there would be like a little comment from somebody that would make, and I would just, okay, is this, is this time to share the truth? If you ever feel that way, it's time to, tell, time to tell the truth. What is the truth? What are you witnessing for? That we are what? Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is the gospel in ten words or so. That we are saved. Wait a second. Saved. We've got to explain that a little bit. Saved from what? Our, our, our sin. That God is holy and just. Right? And that we chose to rebel against him in the Garden of Eden, our father. And we inherited his sin nature. You might not want to explain this. Somebody doesn't know the Bible, but we could. But we, we inherited his sin nature from Adam. It's just what the Bible teaches. And that we, because of our sin nature, because of our own selfish choices, decide, decide to not live a holy life. We rebel against them. That we are saved from our sin by grace, by God's unmerited favor. Grace through faith that God the Father sent the Son in a display of his grace to pay for my sin in full on the cross as a satisfaction, as a payment for my sin to the Father by living a holy and perfect life. He paid my sin, and then it cost him dearly, but then he offers you the gift of salvation through the gospel, and we open it only by faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is the truth. So why should we go out we received power by the Spirit, and we received purpose because of our new identity, purpose to tell the truth. But so what? You know, that's good and all. But how do I kind of take this and apply it to my life? You know, you know, being a preacher by trade, you know, doing this for a living is it, honestly, it's really awesome. I actually, I actually missed you guys and missed going to work, um, and I'm being truthful on that. It's really, I, I enjoy what I do. Um, but, but the life of a preacher is, is one of, at least it should be, constant self-reflection, okay? So I'm just going to share with you just kind of three questions, three ideas that I kind of asked myself uh, when I was preparing this sermon. The, the first application, application number one, is to ponder. It's to ponder and really ask yourself the question, who am I? Who am I? Well, according to 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I am his witness. And how do I then share the gospel? Do I get up in front of somebody and just clobber them? 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, to speak the truth in love. The moment you have an opportunity, speak the truth in love. So number one is to ponder, who am I? What is my identity? I am a witness, design, and purpose to tell the truth. Application number two is to pray. Who is someone you're getting to know that may not follow Christ? Who is somebody in your life that you're getting to know that may not follow Christ? You know, can we just be honest here for just a second? We, we as Christians, over time, we kind of build a bubble. You must track with me on that one? We build a Christian bubble where all of our friends are Christians, all the things we do are with Christians, all the activities, all the thoughts, all the conversations are with Christians. And we kind of surround ourselves in that culture. But friends, it's really difficult, and I'm preaching at myself at this particular moment. It, it's really difficult to share the gospel if you don't know anybody that's a non-believer. So number one is just to pray. What I'm going to ask you to do throughout this rest of the next three weeks is just simply come up with a name of somebody that you want to pray for. Say, Lord, I'm going to pray for blank. I have somebody in my mind as of right now. Who is someone in your life that you're getting to know that may not follow Christ? Begin to pray for them. And then application number three is to prepare. How can you share the truth with clarity? If you get nothing else, a couple things on this one. Number one, this is not a shameless plug, but number, number one, if you're interested in personal evangelism, we're starting Gear Up class next week on that particular front. But then number two, really all you need to know is a couple of Bible verses and then what is the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is the truth in a tiny little nutshell. So what are we... Why should we go out? We have received power by the Spirit, and we received purpose by our new identity as witnesses to tell the truth when given the opportunity. Um, but before I close, allow me just to share, as, as Noah boldly shared last week, we really don't do many altar calls around here but as he said just because we don't doesn't mean there isn't an opportunity to believe in jesus i think there's a quadruple negative in that sentence um but to give us a different perspective on this time allow me just to kind of share an excerpt from someone else who presented the gospel in a different way this is what they say the bible is not a book that tells us what we have to do to earn salvation it is a book that tells us what God did to earn our salvation. What, what he did was send Jesus. Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. The heart of the gospel is the good news, that Jesus has come as God in the flesh and has obeyed God perfectly, and through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, he has paid the debt that we owe to God for disobeying his commands. There is therefore no need for us anymore to hide from God. He will remove from this world all sin and causes of sin, and he will restore the world to a state of peace. And all who have received him as Lord and Savior will participate in his rule and enjoy his goodness forever. 
If you are far from God, maybe you're searching, maybe you don't know where you stand, maybe you've never had a relationship with God, maybe you feel the Holy Spirit calling you. Well, if you do not know Christ, then I'm going to say today is a call to action to no longer put off receiving Christ Jesus. Let me just ask you the question. If you're unsure of where you stand with Jesus, the question is this. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? If the answer is yes, if you have never trusted in Christ, if you have more questions, I'd love for you to see me after this service. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for just the truth of your word. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we see this lesson given to the disciples, but also that is applicable to us, that we have not just received a small amount of power, but God himself. We have received the power of the Spirit to help us go beyond the fear of sharing our faith. And Lord, that we and our identity are your witnesses to tell the truth. Lord, I just pray that we would be mindful of your Spirit's work in our life. That as we live, as we go to work, as we go to the grocery store, as we talk to our children, that we would be mindful of the prompting of the Spirit to be bold enough to share the truth of the gospel. And Lord, give us that bravery. May we walk by the Spirit and be mindful of your power. Thank you for this church. I I love this church. These are my people. And we... Uh, Pray for the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.